Good morning, and uh, I want to greet our campuses who are joining us today, as well as those who are online. We hope that you are encouraged in the Lord, and we thank you for joining us here as we open God's Word. And uh, today we again climb those steps into the upper room, the most important room in all of human history. And today we are observing the most notorious traitor of all time. Uh, he, is the, he certainly is the bad boy of the Bible. Uh, he is the Darth Vader of Scripture. And uh, his name is Judas Iscariot. And I'm today going to tell the larger story of Judas's life. We're going to uh, certainly be in John 13 somewhat, but this is more of a biopic. This is more of the big picture of, of what happened to Judas. And Judas's life provides a very strong warning for how easy it is to be near to Jesus and not love Jesus, to not be saved by Jesus. And I wonder if it's possible that that might be you here today. So the, war- the warning here is real because uh, Judas is one person that we know is in hell. We know it. And we know it because Jesus said that's where he was going. Names him a son of perdition. And if Jesus says you're going to hell, you're going to hell. And Judas is there today. So today, Judas Iscariot. Let's start off by talking about who was Judas Iscariot. And now his name is so notorious that we we don't realize that Judas was a common name in in Israel in the first century. Uh, It is a form of the name Judah, and Judah was one of the 12 sons of Israel, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, a very common cultural name. And there were many Judases even in Jesus' life. Jesus had a brother named Judas. There is another disciple of the 12 disciples, also named Judas. And then there was Judas Iscariot. Now why is he called Judas Iscariot? And we're actually not exactly sure. It is uh, possible that he was from the southern town. There was a southern town of Kerioth which sounds in the language a little bit like Iscariot. And uh, so he might have been from the south. So he might have been the one disciple with a southern accent, uh, you know, a lot of y'alls and grits and stuff. And... But nobody knows. Uh, here's what we do know, is very few parents today are choosing to name their son Judas. In fact, I don't know that I've ever in my whole life met somebody named Judas. And that is because of the notorious character of this guy. So some examples from the Bible regarding uh, his standing. Every list of disciples, and there are many of them, the 12 disciples, every list lists Judas last. The one list in which he is of disciples that he's not listed last. He is not mentioned at all, Acts 1. And when Judas is named, typically they will also include the fact that he is the one that uh, was traitorous towards towards Jesus. So for example, Matthew 10. This is in the story, at least, before 
uh, Judas betrayed Jesus, Matthew writes, Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, commentary, who betrayed him. Mark 3, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Luke 6, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So whatever good may have happened in Judas's life, whatever good he may have done in his life, and we know that there are, there are many good things that he did in his life, I'll get into that in a moment, all of those are eclipsed by the singular terrible thing that he did, and the writers of the New Testament, they can't think about Judas Iscariot without also thinking about him betraying Jesus, and they include that in their note. Now, when you think about Judas Iscariot, we can easily miss the fact that Judas had incredible spiritual privileges. In fact, greater privileges in many ways than, than, than any of us here. Judas Iscariot had them. I'd like to list some of these privileges, because again, the point that I'm getting to here today is that in spite of Judas's privileged position, things he saw, closeness to Jesus, he's in hell. And how easy it is for people to be around the church, be around the gospel, be around spiritual things, to sort of go with the flow and be in the mix of things and end up in hell. And I don't want that for you, I don't want that for me, and you don't want that for you. So let's learn from Judas Iscariot. Privileges, oh, are you talking about privileged? Think of the things that were true in Judas's life. He had a front row seat for the miracles of Jesus. There he is, actually, for example, in the boat when Jesus walks on water on the Sea of Galilee, calms the sea. He gathered, uh, after Jesus fed the 15,000-ish, we're not sure exactly, but feeding of the 5,000 men, maybe Twelve to 15,000 people from the loaves and the fishes. He was one of the disciples who gathered the basket after that. He saw the miracle. He saw the before and after of many of Jesus' physical miracles that he performed. The deaf who couldn't hear, and now they can hear. The blind who couldn't see, and now they can see. Uh, the lame who couldn't walk, now they can walk. Get this, he was there when Lazarus walked out of the tomb. Now, you want to talk about a miracle that if you could pick one to observe, that might be the one that I would uh, uh, pick, to stand there and to see a dead man come out of the grave. And then we know that, for example, Lazarus was walking with Jesus in the triumphal entry. They kind of hung out together. What would you ask Lazarus after he is raised from the dead? I think we all would ask the same question, and no doubt even Judas Iscariot was part of this conversation. What's it like to die? Like, what's it like after death? Would you ask Lazarus that? That's the first thing I would ask him. And no doubt he was asked those things. And there's Judas Iscariot, a part of that conversation, watching Lazarus walk out of the grave. He had a front row for Jesus' teaching. And one of the things that you may miss about Jesus that, that the crowds marveled at was that he had a power in his teaching. There was something about Jesus, the words that came from him, there was a punch to him. There was a power to them. And it says that the crowds were amazed at the power of the teaching 
of Jesus. And there's Lazarus, one of the 12 disciples. He's hearing all of these famous messages, the Sermon on the Mount and all the rest. He's hearing Jesus teaching them. He experienced that power. And on top of that, and in some ways most personally privileged, was the fact that as Jesus walked and lived, Judas Iscariot walked and lived with him. He was discipled by Jesus. We know that he was given authority. This is somewhat confusing in our theology, but he was given authority along with the other disciples to teach, to cast out demons. Remember, the disciples come back and they, they say to Jesus, We're, demons are cast out in, uh, by, by the power that you gave us. And Jesus says, don't be excited about demons being cast out. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. There's Judas casting demons out. There's Judas doing teaching when the two by two as the disciples go out. He was involved in spiritual things. He was a member of the church. He was involved in ministry. He was so consistent with the other disciples that when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, it's not like the other 11 and go, Judas, we know it's you. For three years, we've seen, we, you, you, it's so you. <laughs> no, what do they do? They all look at each other and they're like, who could he be talking about? Judas was as much a disciple with the rest of them uh, such that he, he blended in. There was nothing about him. In fact, you could make the argument he was one of the most respected disciples. How do we know that? When they said, okay, who are we going to trust to be in charge of the money bag around here? You know who they picked? They didn't pick Andrew. They didn't pick Peter. They picked Judas Iscariot. He was the treasurer of the group. And we know from the story that he, was, uh, he would often pilfer out of the money bag when no one was looking. And then finally, day in and day out, for three years, Jesus lived with the incarnate Son of God. What a privilege. Can you imagine that? Okay. And, and realize as they traveled, it's not like you know, they're staying at the Hampton Inn every night. As they're traveling, they might have you know, overnight accommodations. They stayed with uh, uh, Mary and Martha, for example. But oftentimes, they were no doubt around a fire, spending the night traveling, and, and there, the, there the guys are around the campfire. And there's Jesus, and there's Judas. They did normal things together prepared meals, bathed, hygiene, they walked. They saw each other hungry and sick and tired. The ordinary stuff of human life, Judas was there with Jesus. And have you ever traveled with somebody who's not a family member? You don't know people. You think you know them, but you don't know them until you travel with them. And Judas had this up and close and personal perspective with Jesus, a nearly unimaginable privilege. What was it like to live with a perfect human being? 
Now, after the service, you could ask Jennifer about that experience. <laughs> Here in the front row. And you're going to hear a very different story than you expect. But think of this, every glimpse that, that, that Judas had, and, he, and Jesus was the center of attention, he was the star of the show, and there's Judas in the background, you know, almost like a handler or whatever, there he is, and every time he saw Jesus dealing with any situation, no matter how tired he was, uh, no matter how hard uh, the, the travel had been, Jesus responded in perfect righteousness every single time. which only multiplies Judas's guilt. He knew Jesus as very few people did. We could call him an intimate friend of Jesus. Which brings us now, with that background, to John chapter 13 and the upper room. Judas plays a very significant role in the story of the upper room. There is a little backstory, though, to the upper room, and that is the fact that the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, these were the religious leaders of the day, had been plotting behind the scenes. They wanted to kill Jesus. The Jews were not allowed by the Romans to execute anyone, and so this was going to involve political intrigue and maneuvering, and so they were having all of these meetings. How do we get rid of this guy? How do we, how do we even arrest him. I mean, just arresting Jesus, the most popular man of the day, they wouldn't dare do that. And somebody said, we need somebody on the inside to give us some intel about when Jesus, probably at night, is going to be somewhere away from the crowd, because if we could ever know where he was going to be away from the crowd at night, I think we could arrest him without a mob. And somebody said, that, that's, exact, that's like the only way this is going to work. But who on the inside is going to betray Jesus of Nazareth? And the backstory here is that on his own, out of the blue, Judas Iscariot secretly goes to the Sanhedrin and says to them, how much will you give me financially? If I, if I betray him to you. And they offer to Judas 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. It was, in, in our day, maybe $3,000, roughly. $3,000 for the Son of God. You can calculate that in your mind as whether that's an appropriate amount. Here's the story, Luke 22, I should have read this. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, no doubt, and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And so that is the backstory to the upper room. One of the 13 people there scheming, looking for some occasion to betray Jesus. And we pick up the story now in verse 21, chapter 13. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, this is John, was reclining at table close to Jesus. Remember the, the, the thing we did a few weeks ago? So John's right next to, 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 to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Here we have this incredibly powerful and poignant moment in the story, the ultimate betrayal in all of human history. Verse 21 says that Jesus was uh, troubled in spirit. One, one uh, translation says that he was in anguish of spirit. And what was he in anguish about? One of you will betray me. I wonder today if maybe you can relate to the pain of betrayal. There's something about you know, if your enemy does you bad, you sort of expect it. But when somebody in your inner circle, an intimate friend, somebody that you have trusted, when that person betrays us, there is a very visceral anguish that we feel. Can you relate to that? I'm going to guess here in the room we have many people who can relate to that. Somebody that maritally betrayed you. Somebody that you trusted financially and they betrayed you. Some other story like that. We, in, in the course of life, we all pick up a couple Judases along the way. And sometimes we're the Judas in other people's story. Now, a few verses earlier, Jesus began to talk of this betrayal, and he does so by quoting probably the second most famous betrayal in human history, which would be Absalom and David. He quotes Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And in this, friends, I, it's easy for us to forget the fact that Jesus was human and all of the same feelings and emotions that we experience when things happen to us, he also experienced them. And he is in anguish. He is, he's hurt that a friend, Judas, would do this to him. He's filled with anguish. And I just say that because if you are here and I talk, the talk about betrayal and somebody doing you bad and treachery connects in your story in some way, I want you to realize that when you pray to Jesus, that he is our sympathetic high priest, that he understands our human weakness, and boy, does he understand betrayal. He gets it. So what happens here is that Jesus, uh, and this is, I get confused by this. You would think that Jesus said, it's the person that I'm going to give this bread to, and he gives the bread to Judas, that all of them would be like, aha! But somehow, because of Judas' position as the treasurer, they get confused about what Jesus is saying. It's only later that they realize that's what 
was going on, and that's who was going to betray Jesus. But he hands him the, the bread after dipping it, and Judas gets up. He very quickly leaves the upper room, and he goes to the authorities, and he says, now is the time. He's going to Gethsemane. Now, perhaps Jesus had mentioned that somehow in the course of conversation that, hey, after dinner tonight, we're going to go to Gethsemane, which they often did go to Gethsemane. But somehow Judas knew that that's what they're going to do. And so he goes and he gives them the intel that they needed to go to the grove of trees, olive trees, called Gethsemane. And so the Pharisees send out word, a Roman cohort is gathered, a cohort of Roman soldiers are like 600 people, so maybe not that many, but we're talking about a big group. This was like they were going to capture you know, some, some uh, uh, great warrior, terrible person. You know, the, again, the, they're going to get Darth Vader here or something. They go in in mass, huge force, following Judas's lead. So here we have... Now, two scenes. Judas going, he's going to Gethsemane, get everybody together. The camera pans back to the upper room, and here you have Jesus knowing full well what Judas is doing, knowing exactly what's about to happen. But there he is, and what is he doing? He is teaching his disciples. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He prays, John 17, his famous high priestly prayer. In the upper room, you do not find a... uh, you know, an anxious Jesus. He is there fulfilling God's will, knowing what's going on, even as he speaks. So they do. Uh, Mark tells us that they finish their time in the upper room, they sing a hymn, and they go to Gethsemane, which would have meant crossing the famous Kidron Valley, and uh, the Mount of Olives, at the base of the Mount of Olives, the famous Mount of Olives, there is, there is Gethsemane. If we go back to Israel again, hopefully some of you can go along and see the very spot. It's one of those places in Israel where you know you are close to where it happened. Gethsemane is still there. And after arriving, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his his inner circle, and they kind of separate and they go, and Jesus begins to pray. And he is praying fervently there. And shortly after that, he goes back to Peter, James, and John, and maybe the rest of the disciples, and he says, my betrayer is at hand. Here comes Judas Iscariot with the Roman soldiers. And the text says this in Luke 22, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And again, the treachery here is just, it's just layer upon layer, isn't it? So it's dimly lit. Uh, the Roman soldiers, it's not like there's you know, TV and, and uh, newspapers and all that. Maybe they caught a, a glimpse of Jesus at some point, but they don't know who, what he looks like versus the other 12 disciples. And so Judas says, I will show you which one is him. I'm gonna go up and I'll give him a kiss which was the sort of greeting in the Middle East. And so that's what he does. Judas goes up to Jesus and gives him a kiss. And this was the signal for the Roman soldiers to know which one was Jesus. And they arrest him. There's a tumult that happens there. I'm not going to get into that. But they arrest Jesus. And here is the rest of the story for Judas Iscariot. 
This is, uh, you know, maybe, this is middle of the night. We, we'd call it middle of the night. This is very, very early in the morning when Jesus is arrested, the wee hours of the morning. Sometime after Jesus' arrest, Judas Iscariot has remorse for what he has done. And he realizes his great error. And Matthew 27 says this, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, this is how when people use you, they don't care when it's done. They go, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Now that's where Matthew ends the story of Judas. But Acts 1 picks up the story of Judas's death and we put these two together and the best that we can tell, this is what happened. That Judas went out to a field and with a rope, apparently a field that had a, a kind of high place on it with a tree and he hung himself on the tree only Sometime maybe before he died, we're not sure, the rope broke and Judas fell down onto rocks and Acts 1, this is in the Bible, Acts 1 says that his intestines spilled out everywhere. Now some of you are getting more interested in the Bible all the time, <laughs> especially the teenage boys probably. That's in the Bible, it is in the Bible and it describes the terrible end of the of the notorious betrayer of Jesus Christ. You know, even his death, you think about the contrast between Judas and Jesus, this is, this is intriguing. Judas is dead before Jesus is dead. Judas hangs from a tree, Jesus hangs from a tree. Judas dies in shame for his sin, Jesus dies for our sin. Judas goes to hell, Jesus takes us to heaven. Judas is history's most notorious traitor, and Jesus is history's greatest hero. And to realize that the story of Judas is still ongoing, because today, if we can think of hell in a temporal way, Judas is in hell still today. What is he thinking about there? What is he pondering what is he remembering we know he is in hell again Jesus says in John 17 calls him the son of destruction he says this in Matthew 26 the son of man goes it is, as it is written of him but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed it would be better for that man if he had not been born those are terrifying words to hear from the great king and judge of all Judas is in hell today, and what is he thinking there? How does he reflect upon the privileges that were his, the incredible honor to be amongst the 12 disciples of Jesus, to go over in his mind over and over again how and why he did what he did. He is still there in hell, enduring punishment without the chance of parole, pardon, or end. It is a tragic story. It is a tragic life. 
and it is in the Bible, and it provides us some very important truths so that we do not follow the path of the tragic life of Judas Iscariot. And I'd like to highlight those because my aim here is that everybody here goes to heaven. Okay? I want all of you to go to heaven. But this is where Judas's example is kind of scary, honestly. Because he shows us how easy it is to be a fake to appear like everybody else, but actually in your heart, to be a fake. Or as I say here, spiritual light, he had it, but without authentic faith in Jesus. You would think somebody like, I mean, how could anybody see the miracles, walk with Jesus, live with Jesus, talk to Lazarus after he's raised from the dead, experience all the things that Judas did. How could somebody see miracles and not believe? Or we might think this, if only we preached better, if only our ministries were more effective, if only we were, you know, Better organized, more visionary, more missional. You know, if we really got our act together around here, there wouldn't be anybody in Northwest Indiana that goes to hell. They all would believe if only we did it better. And yet, here you have Judas Iscariot, who is up close and personal. He has the greatest spiritual privilege of anyone who ever lived. And yet he rejected Jesus, and he went to hell. He didn't love Jesus. He was an opportunist. You think about, like, what was Judas's thing? He was an opportunist. And somehow money, or we might say materialism, of this worldliness was in Judas's heart in such a way that he saw the opportunity to be with Jesus as something that he could benefit from. And in the end, he monetizes that relationship in order to betray Jesus. In fact, he uses Jesus. Judas uses Jesus. Judas was about the benefits, but he was not about the belief. May I say that again? He was about the benefits of Jesus, but he was not about the belief. And this is why I hold out to you today Judas Iscariot as as uh, example A of play-acting Christianity, of acting like you are something that in your heart you are not. And this is why all of us, myself included, should look at Judas Iscariot and say, is my faith a pretension? Or is it real? Am I about Jesus because of the benefits I get with Jesus? Or do I love him actually in my heart? Isn't that how Jesus uh, restored Peter? Okay, I'm going to get into Peter in a moment here. But so, so Peter denies Jesus. This same night, it's a bad night for Judas, it's a bad night for Peter. Peter denies Jesus. But later, Jesus restores Peter, and he doesn't say, Do, are you, do you regret what you did? He doesn't say, do you realize how stupid that was? No. Three times he asks a question, and it's the central question for us here today. Peter, do you love me? Peter, 
do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Because for a true disciple of Jesus, that is the bottom line. That I love him, I don't love him as much as I should, and my love is, is weak, but is it real? Is it true? And this counterfeit faith, sadly, is all too common. It frightens me to think about how many people online, here in the room, campuses all over, we got all these people sort of, you know, jumping on the bandwagon and, and want to be a part of what God is doing and isn't it great and maybe that's you. You're like, you're kind of into Jesus and it kind of scratches a certain spiritual itch in your life and you kind of like the spiritual vibe and maybe you like some of the Christian entertainment and the music and the this and the that. It's so easy, in fact, in many ways, easier now than ever to sort of be on the bandwagon of Jesus but not be an actual disciple of Jesus. You, like Judas, are in it because of what you get out of it. And the scary reality is that you can be around the real thing but not have the real thing. These are some of the most frightening words in all the Bible, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We see in this text, you can do great things in the name of Jesus, apparently great things. Judas did. He cast out demons. He preached Jesus. He was a part of the whole thing. Lord, Lord. But Jesus looks at Judas, and I want to make sure he's not looking at you today, friend, and saying, I never knew you. There was never a reality to your faith. You were play acting. You were on the bandwagon. You were around the Jesus thing. But you never loved me. You never knew me. And this is where I think Judas's hypocrisy provides a foil, a kind of a counterpoint to what actual, authentic, saving faith looks like. Because if, if, you're, if I'm you and I'm sitting here and the preacher's up here saying the things that I'm saying, I'm looking in my heart and going, well, what about me? Do, do I have the real thing? I, I want... I want my sins forgiven. I want to know that I have eternal life. I want to know and love Jesus. How do I know if it's real? How do I know if it's true? And I want to just contrast Judas here with two people who we know had the, the real thing. Mary and Peter. So Judas. Judas loved money. He loved money. Mary loved Jesus. I don't have time to tell the whole story, but you might be familiar with the story where Mary brings out the incredibly extravagant and expensive perfume, and she anoints Jesus with this perfume. And 
it fill, you know, the smell fills the whole room. And Judas is there, and he is appalled that she would waste something so valuable on Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them. Judas rebukes Mary, and, and Jesus rebukes Judas. We come to find out this is because Judas was hoping that maybe the value of that, it could be sold and the money could be put in the, in the money bag, and since he was in charge of the money bag, then maybe he could himself profit a little bit from the value of the perfume. He wasn't thinking about the adoration, the worship, the veneration, the love. He was thinking about the finances and the money. And what we see in this is that true faith treasures Christ. That's Mary. Fake faith treasures treasure. And Judas loved the treasure. Is there not a warning for us in the materialistic day that we live in to beware? Let's talk about Judas and Peter. As I mentioned earlier, this was a bad night for both of them. Uh, Peter... And, and Jesus even told him, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. If, if I'm Peter, I'm thinking to myself, like, there's no way, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. If I don't say anything, I won't deny him. So I am zippo, no take, I am, no, I, I, I'm, that is not going to happen. And as you know, it happened. Peter denies Jesus three times. And so we have this contrast. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. You might say, which is the worst sin? I say both are really bad, okay? Both are terrible, terrible sins. The difference between these two is not the guilt of what they did. It is the response to what they did. Judas has remorse and wishes that he hadn't done it. Peter has remorse and wishes that he hadn't done it three times. What does Judas do? He responds with more sin and he murders himself. Peter sought the Lord and was restored. So we think about ourselves here. Did you know that Christians sin? Okay. Oh, yes. And sometimes we sin spectacularly. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that both feel remorse, both feel guilty, la la la. But a genuine Christian wants the relationship restored with God and goes about whatever it takes to do that. We will confess our sins. We will turn away from them in repentance. We try to restore our testimony. Whatever harm we did, we try to make it right. I've seen this in many times in both directions that a professing Christian will, will sin as well. Maybe even a, a member of our church. And that sin is somehow made public. And all of a sudden, that person, who I haven't seen at prayer meeting or Bible study in years, occasional attender on a Sunday morning, all of a sudden, they are desperate to meet with me. Or they are showing up at, I mean, 
they could be men and they're coming to the women's Bible study. Like they are trying desperately to assuage their guilt and to show everybody what a sincere and good person I am. They want to meet with me. They want me to, which I can't do, but they, they want me to somehow absolve them of their guilt. And they don't want anybody to know about it. They are in damage control. And guess what happens? I've seen this over and over. Eventually the crisis passes. And this person who hasn't missed a prayer meeting, a Bible study, uh, you know, a gathering of any kind in like weeks, off they go and you don't see them again. They're right back to where they were. And you ask the question, were they really seeking Christ? Were they, were they wanting to restore their relationship with God? Do they really love him? Are they Mary or are they Judas? Are they Peter or are they Judas? And I contrast that with how sweet it is. And, you know, we, we never want to go soft on sin, ever. We believe in the holiness of God. But we also believe in grace, amazing grace. And to see somebody who spectacularly sins and the response to that in their life uh, is that they humbly go and they talk to people who are affected by their sins. They try to make it right. They admit their guilt to God. They'll admit their guilt to anybody who asks them. They have no desire to hide the sin anymore. They take steps to change the behavior, whatever it was. There is a kind of sincerity about them. And friends, that is Peter. And what I want you to realize is that Judas, that Jesus never occupied that kind of place in Judas's heart. Not like Peter. Peter goes on to be the leader of the, of the church. Peter writes books of the Bible. Peter responds to the terrible sin and God does a work of grace in his life. And we praise God for Peter. And I just wanna ask you today, in your heart of hearts, not who you appear to be, but in the you that only you know, who do you resemble here? Are you Judas or are you Mary? Are you Judas or are you Peter? Does Jesus actually occupy a place of sincere affection in your heart? Are you a pretender or a genuine follower? And the great news is that if you come even today to Jesus sincerely, and sometimes our prayers sound like this, like, I'm not even sure how I'm supposed to feel. I don't know, I don't know what I'm supposed to say other than I want you to know that I want the real thing. Help my unbelief. Help me, God. I want to... I think those are the kinds of prayers that the genuine, sincere follower of Jesus, even in weakness, offers to God and indicates a genuine, saving faith within. So final question. What if Judas... After his betrayal, after the arrest, after he has remorse and realizes what he has done, 
what if Judas, rather than going and taking his own life, would have somehow found a way back into Caiaphas's court and fell at Jesus' feet and said, be merciful to me, I have sinned. Do you think that Judas could have been forgiven for betraying the Son of God? I think that he would have been. And why do I say that? Because such is the grace of God. As the song says, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, no matter what it is. And I say this as an encouragement to you. I don't know what you've done, but no matter what you've done, it isn't as bad as what Judas did. And if Judas could be forgiven, friend, you can be too. Such is the grace of God. For any who will humble themselves before him and come sincerely asking for his kindness and grace, trusting in that death of Jesus on the cross as the sufficient payment for all our sins. This is mercy and grace that we find on the path over and over again as a follower of Jesus. And we find the opportunity to be restored and for our lives to be made right, even when our lives look a lot like Judas Iscariot. And that is a tragic life. Make sure it's not your life. Amen.